Hello, Weekly Wealth Podcast Nation. We have a great episode today, but before we get started, I have just a couple questions. So the first one is, why is it so difficult to talk about money? Question number two is, what is your money script? What do you tell yourself about money? And question number three is, what is your relationship with money? And today we're talking with Michelle Arpenbegina, and we're going to talk about some of the answers to these questions and, and maybe learn about why we have our attitudes and our relationships about money. Also, I would love for you to check out our website. We've just updated it with a uh, financial roadmap, www.weeklywealthpodcast.com. Please download our new PDF guide to having financial success, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. This is the Weekly Wealth Podcast with certified financial planner, David Chudik, where we discuss the wealth building mindsets and tactics that can help you to build and maintain wealth for you, your family, and your business. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Wealth Podcast. My name is David Chudik, and I am a certified financial planner with Parallel Financial. And on the Weekly Wealth Podcast, we talk about the mindsets, the tactics, and the strategies that help you to build and maintain wealth. So this week, I am very excited to talk about some financial mindsets. Um, And we're not going to really talk about anything strategy-wise as far as money, but we're going to talk about mindsets and how we think about money. And we're excited to have Michelle Arpin-Begina on the line with us. And um, she believes that we all need to examine the money story scripts and lessons that affect our financial psychology so that we can rethink what we know about money to have more of it. Michelle lives in Wyckoff, New Jersey, and her husband, Mike, and sons, Alex and Nick, because she's an avid photographer. Her sons are her favorite subjects. So, hey, Michelle, how are you? Hey, David. Great. Thanks for having me on today. Well, I'm excited to talk about this. And um, even though that you and I are even quote competition, I think the world is just big enough that we can talk about some really, really important financial topics. Because when it comes down to it, if you take all of the problems you've ever had or I've ever had, how many of them have some money component to them that if we would have just handled money differently, those problems wouldn't exist? Mm, uh Probably 99%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us about yourself. You have some kids, you're a photographer. That's a, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, uh, you know what I, um, my parents growing up, they each, uh, they did things together and they each had hobbies as they worked. And I observed that. And I'm kind of one of those people that I have hobbies. I know there's a lot of people who work who don't seem to find the time. The one that really stuck for me was photography since I was a 10 year old little kid. And um, my favorite is actually sports photography because you're just, you're literally just catching candidates in the moment. Nobody's posing and it's fun. Like I always have this vision of a shot I want to get. And when I, when I nail the shot, it's just, it's so thrilling. It's just so much fun. Well, it's funny that you mentioned sports. My oldest is 18. He played his last club soccer match. Uh, last week and, and they made it to regional. So it was the highest level of junior soccer and um, a couple tears shed on, on his, on his last match, but we have just so many, he was a goalkeeper and just so many mm. just pictures that somebody would email where he's flying through the air doing something great. And it's really, it's immortalized forever. Now that there's a, now that there's a shot of it. 
That's awesome. It, you know what? It's uh, that's priceless. That's truly the stuff that's priceless. Congratulations to your it son. It is for sure. Yeah. So tell me, tell me a little bit about your practice and kind of how you got started in this kind of work. It, you know what? It started from birth to tell you the truth, David. Um, I, my first memories around money, uh, actually the first one was when I was six years old and my father asked me if he could borrow money from my piggy bank. And I asked him, what, what do you need the money for? And he said, cigarettes. And I said, wow. no, I said, no, you can't take, you can't have the money. And he took it anyway. He took the money in front of me anyway. And I think back on that story first. How that's life changing or life life for, forming. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and we all have them, right? We all mm-hmm. have these stories, but um, yes, what it set in motion, you know. And I'm gonna, I regularly throw my parents under the bus and then hopefully redeem them by the end of a conversation. <laughs> someone's listening to, <laughs> but I speak the truth, which took me a very, very long time, decades to actually speak the truth of these stories. Uh, I'd rather tell somebody how much money I make than actually reveal personal inside stories about how I grew up um, and the relationship my parents had with money and how it impacted our family. But I've since come around about that. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the word relationship and money, because we all do have like a relationship with money, don't we? We do. And I actually think it's the weirdest thing that I say we have a relationship with money because it sounds a little um, materialistic and a little Mm -hmm. odd because we have a relationship with people, but we do have a relationship with money and just like a real life relationship, you have to pay attention to it. You want it to be there when you need it. It's It's got your back. You know, all the same ingredients are there. And money is an inanimate object, but it animates just about every area of our life. So we do have a relationship. What I think is most of us don't realize we have one. We don't understand where it came from. And we don't know how to transcend the beliefs that we came into from how we were raised because we don't stop. Like no one teaches us to stop and just take a little trip down memory lane to kind of raise that awareness. And I use the word transcend specifically because I'm not talking about transforming your relationship with money. I'm talking about transcending it. A couple of years ago, um, you know, who Abraham Maslow is with the hierarchy, the hierarchy of needs. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the, the top of the pyramid, quote unquote, which he never created the pyramid, but that's popular culture kind of created that. So that the, the top of the hierarchy of needs after his death, it was found out that the top of the pyramid he had amended before he passed away, but didn't live long enough to popularize it. The top is not self-actualization, it's transcendence. Wow. Yeah. So when I say transcend, right, you, if you think about that word, you going above and beyond what you thought was possible. And you're also living from the inside out. It, it goes from being a status to a state. And I think that's what we all want. We want to, we want to have our, our financial status match our state of mind around money. We want to feel as good about our relationship with money and the things that we get to accomplish with it and for others with it as the numbers that we see in our bank account. 
but we often don't, right? We still worry about it. We don't feel good about it. We don't know when we have enough. Um, all of those things, our, our state of mind doesn't always match what we actually numerically have. Now, do you find, because I certainly have in working with clients, you just said kind of the, the words, we don't know when we have enough. I've had clients where I've had to say, you know what, I am giving you the thumbs up. You can spend more money and enjoy it. You have enough. And we've looked at the numbers. We've done the calculations. We're taking your emotion out of it. And mathematically, I'm the disinterested third party. I am giving you permission to spend more money and enjoy it. Have you seen people kind of had freeing experiences like that? Yes. And I know people hear stories like that and go, I wish I had that problem, but it actually really is a problem for people. Um, I absolutely have had it. You reminded me of a couple that came into my office and the husband said, I just want you to convince my wife that what I'm telling her is true, that she can stop working. And it's not, it, here's what, maybe you find this too, David, that if the numbers are enough to move the needle, right? If you show them the chart, if you've done the analysis and you've shown them, look, look here on this paper, the numbers here show that this is an okay decision, right? Whatever it is. If that's not getting the person to step into, you know, buying the car or retiring or whatever it is that they are, are blocked about, then it's an emotional thing. And then I think it's about, okay, let's break that down. And let's help you move through that. Because sometimes it's not just the numbers, right? It's, you know, when you think about it from a behavioral standpoint, is it a cognitive bias or an emotional bias? It can, it can be either in this case, but I, my rule of thumb is if the numbers aren't proving it, quote unquote, then there's something more or something deeper going on. Well, and you said sometimes it's not about the numbers. I would almost say the opposite. It's, it's almost never about the numbers. It's about some underlying issue. Maybe there's a kind of an, an identity issue where maybe she couldn't feel like she if she gave up work, then what does she do with her life? So it's really not that possibly that that, that she's afraid that they won't have enough money. It's that some mm -hmm. other underlying issue, maybe the husband's not loving her enough. So she feels like, well, I'm more important when I'm working. But literally by pointing those things out, you can change people's lives. And it's not really about the dollars and cents, it's about the underlying issues, so. Absolutely, agree. So, like feelings about money, we all have feelings and attitudes and, and some of that, I guess all of them are really from our upbringing where we've been around. How do we normalize those feelings to where they're, they positively affect us, not negatively affect us? I think it's really taking a little trip down memory lane and thinking back to different moments, like the moment I described with, you know, the piggy bank and buying cigarettes, right? That's a flashpoint. It was a bit traumatic that my father took the money anyway, right? So what did I make that mean, right? That's the type of, those are the types of questions that you wanna ask yourself. So it's, I think, looking at your experiences, whether they were emotionally charged or not, rehearing the words, the phrases that your parents said out loud. You know, did you hear you can be anything you wanna be? Did you hear uh, money isn't important? Did you hear rich people are bad? You know, what did you hear? Did you hear rich people are philanthropists? What did you hear? What did you experience? 
And then what were the really big moments, positive or negative in your, in your family's life? And the question is, you know, really thinking about how old was I when that happened? What was the experience like? And what did I make it mean? Because really think about it, you know, where things are happening to us when we're five, seven, 10, 12 years old, we don't have the capacity to understand, nor do we have the intellectual information to really understand all the dynamics of situations. And we make a ton of assumptions. And those assumptions are what feed our beliefs. And most of our beliefs we know are subconscious. Most of what's driving the show with our money are our subconscious beliefs. And if something, if everything's going great with your money and it's just not an area of your life where you're like, I'm really, you know, I've got a trouble spot here, then you know, okay, there's, there's something more going on. There's a belief that's overriding my better judgment and my behavior. And I think one of the best ways is to just re-examine those three, er those three things, stories, experiences, flashpoints, emotional charged events. So if we look back maybe at some different parts of your life, different chapters, how did the six-year-old piggy bank incident affect you at six years old and presumably negatively, but, and then did you have long lasting negative relationships with money because of it? And then at what point did you turn it into a positive or were you ever able to turn it into a positive and how and why did you? Hmm. Great questions. So the, I'm not sure how much I learned about money with that first incident, other than in my family, it was the first of several incidents where I call it pretend permission. My father pretended to ask permission and then did whatever he wanted with the money. So money to him, you know, they, they say we operate out of, you know, money either is power, love, security, or freedom. It was a power thing, right? He definitely had an attitude. I make the money, I make the decisions. So if we fast forward from when I was six, and there's so many stories I could tell here, I'll, I will spare your listeners of all of them. But I'll fast forward to a story of when I was 17. And I it was about a month after graduating high school. And I was standing on a dock at a marina. And my father was letting me know that he blew the entire college account on a yacht that was sitting in the water. And my first reaction was survival. It was to find a way forward and it was to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Now to give a little background, what I heard growing up was, you'll be the first to go to college, your college material, you're smart. My father even took me on college campus tours I was the kid who like read books, blow drying her hair in the morning. That's how much I love. I still do that. That's how much I love to learn. Okay. That's weird, but, but so, we're not, I don't judge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a learner. I'm a learner, David. So what I'm trying to convey is that I was kind of, I, I was more than led to believe that the support would be there to send me to college. Group. So that was a complete shock. And my mindset though, was practically, I'm a college graduate and waiting at that point. 
it was like, no, my next step is to go to college. I really wanted it, um, all of that kind of stuff. I think if my mindset wasn't so strong that that was something that I wanted and would be an inevitable in my life that I would definitely get my education, I would have otherwise probably let that dream die right there on that dock, but I didn't. And to me, that had so much to do with the identity that I had adopted. And I think that's the point of the story when it comes to what identity, as you were you know, giving some really great examples around when you have enough, but you don't, I think a lot of it is identity that you alluded to, right? If you've been a doctor your whole life and you put down that, you know, you take off that white lab coat, who are you? Well, I was a college student and waiting. And what, how these things informed me, the number one thing for me was security and, and freedom was the second, right? That's, what became really, really important to me. And the hard lesson I learned was you're on your own with money. Now, my parents are great people. They are hardworking. They are people that are honest people. They were doing the best. There was a lot of fallout that, and they definitely made some decisions that were uh, really hurtful toward me. The boat was just the capstone of, of many but I love them. And they were what I call high performance defiant, right? They ran a business, they made a great income. They were very, very successful in just about all areas of their life, except when it came to money. And I think that there are a lot of people out there who are suffering from that. They just don't know how to get that piece of their life together. The fear that it created in me was that I would also become a spendthrift like my parents. Because as the higher the income, the more they spent. So we had private airplanes, automobiles, a yacht. And what people didn't know from the outside looking in was that my parents were down to their last five bucks every single time they bought a big ticket item. Our house was gonna be foreclosed on. They were back on their taxes. Nobody knew that from the outside looking in. So how and I, why did they let it get to that? Obviously there was enough income and it got out of control at a point, but how did it get that out of control to where, I mean, you can just not have the private jet and then presumably all the other expenses would, would be okay. How does it get that far gone when, when the income, cause they were not minimum wage. It's hard to even make ends meet on seven or $8 an hour. How did how did they let that happen? Yeah, it's a great question. So my parents had very different money scripts. Um, you know, my mom was pretty vigilant and my father was more the spendthrift. And if you, you know, you think about that, that word spendthrift is confusing too. I think people think it means, well, I spend my money, but I'm thrifty about it. If you look at the origin of the word, it's very interesting. The word thrift today means to be frugal. The origin of the word thrift used to mean prosperity. So spendthrift means to spend my prosperity. Isn't that interesting? And you're right. My parents, as their income increased, the, the business that they were in, uh, they were in the moving and storage business. And they did a lot of um, uh, moves for the military. And what would happen is 
they would have large accounts receivable and all of a sudden these big checks would come in. And when those big checks came in, my father always had a plan for some big ticket item that he was gonna buy. So, you know, I never went without food or a roof over my head. And it sounds really wonderful to have all these fabulous toys to, you know, boat around in and fly around in. I assure you, it, it was not. It was very, very insecure because even though we had a plane, we could barely afford the gas for it. And maybe our house was being foreclosed on at that time or the threat of it was there, right? So it was very high, low kind of a relationship. The biggest fear I developed was that I would become a spendthrift. And I was so uh, freaked out about was I, when I started earning more and more money, would I then just keep blowing all my money? And what actually took over for me, thankfully it's a fear I've never realized, um, was I wanted financial security so much because I didn't experience that growing in that, that that's my underlying um, MO for how I handle my money. Now how it shows up sometimes negatively is it can make me a little risk averse. I won't take as much risk with my money as sometimes I should. And I'm honest about that. Like you've got to know your own biases. If you're a financial advisor or otherwise, you have to know your own biases to be able to work through them. I hope that yeah. answered your question. I know I no, I, no, that's that's very interesting. And, and to me, what's fascinating is that I think we can be motivated to be like somebody or we can be motivated to not be like somebody and and you can love your family you can love your parents but there's nothing wrong with saying you know what they kind of screwed up in this area and i don't want to make those same mistakes and it sounds yeah, like you, it, uh, you've taken a different path at least money wise there is there, there were two things that i said growing up like i remember my teenage years looking at my parents and saying to myself you guys have all the ingredients to be like you know a, a a resounding success in the arena of money. And you and the phrase I kept using was, and you just can't get out of your own way. It was like, I, I just used to always think to myself, they just can't get out of their own way because they had it all. And the other was I made a vow. This is not going to be me. The, the financial insecurity that I felt, it was... Um, like eating a tension sandwich from about the age of six until I was in my mid twenties that um, I just wanted to get rid of that feeling. And that's what was motivating me was to just get on level ground where I was making enough and supporting myself and then ultimately taking that next step and starting to build and then just to keep you know, building beyond that. But it was really, I was very driven to be a success to just never feel those feelings again. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And if you look about like the amount of bondage that the boats and the planes and, and the toys place on your lives, if you have payments on them, it just takes away all your freedom. And then when you're, when you're not free, you're stressed out. When you're stressed out, you're not a good spouse. You're not a good parent. You kick the dog, you, you stress eat. <laughs> maybe other yeah. coping mechanisms. And this all starts from just not being conscious about how you should spend your money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And listen, I'm a big believer in 
everyone should make the choices or anyone has, everyone has the power to make the choices that they want to make. Right. Like I, um, even looking back, like I have no judgment around how my parents did or didn't spend their money. That was their choice to do it. The challenge was the lack of, um, the lack of empathy or the lack of understanding of the impact their choices were having on the family. That's where I have an issue because money is relational, right? It's not only your own relationship that you have with it, but it's relational in terms of the decisions that we make. They rub off on our spouse, our parents, our children. They rub off on everybody who's close to us. Well, and I look at, we all have several parts of our health. There's our financial health, our physical health, our spiritual health, our relational health. And none of those are separate from the, from the others. If, if, if you're a spiritual person, typically there's some form of generosity that should, that is, that is, um, should be incorporated. But if you're cheap as dirt and if you, uh, aren't generous, well, how that does definitely negatively affects your, your spirituality. And, and if you're, you and your spouse are not talking about money, then that affects your relationships and everything else. Mm -hmm. So now what are some of like, what are the common beliefs that people have money about money? Some of the common negative beliefs and even the positive beliefs and like how important are our beliefs about our money and what do they do? Like, why is it important to, to acknowledge what your beliefs are and maybe even change them? Mm Hmm. Well, they say that we have four main money scripts, money status, money worship, money avoidance, and money vigilance. So if we take money vigilance, the underlying belief is money is private. Money status is my net worth is my self-worth. Money worship is more money will fix all my problems. And money avoidance is money is bad. So for example, if somebody has an underlying script or belief that money is bad, if you start earning more money, you may start spending more. Uh, if you come into an inheritance, you may give it away. Why? Because if money is bad and I have money, it must make me a bad person. Like literally people will get rid of their money. Um, money status, which, um, is probably the most visual of the scripts because we see it. It might show up in the airplane or the yacht, right? Or the latest phone or, or, or car. That belief that my net worth is my self-worth. People are trying to behave in such a way to make themselves appear to be what they aspire to be and are afraid that they are not and they want other people to think. So it's a very... Um, it's a comparison itis kind of a script, not in the sense that maybe they're comparing or striving to be who somebody else is. It's that they want to portray themselves as something and they're using money as that tool to do it because they don't really own who they are as a person. So those are some examples. And then what we hear, like I'm thinking about a client of mine who he, uh, his first job out of college, he was making great money. And five years into that job, he had about $1,000 to his name. And he was really, he didn't like his work and he was really dissatisfied with, you know, how did I just work all these years? And I have not, virtually, you know, nothing or little to show for it. 
And he, he got some coaching around it. And what he reheard as an adult was his father's voice, which he had heard growing up, money isn't important. And when he heard it as an adult, he, like it was like he got struck by a lightning bolt. And he said, no wonder I don't have any money. I've adopted my father's attitude. And if I'm not treating money as if it's important, it's not any, literally said to me, it's not everything, but it is important. It's just gonna, you know, go into the ether. I've got to take care of it. And when he realized that, that's how powerful beliefs can be. When he even just realizing that, it totally changed the trajectory of his life. So I think people, I assume people think that looking back on your history is like, therapy. It's what I call like self-serve therapy, right? You're, you're your own therapist. You're just looking back and looking on those clues. It doesn't mean you need to sit on somebody's couch. You can, and there are financial therapists and that's awesome that this is all developing. But when I say self-serve financial therapy, sometimes it's just raising your own awareness as an adult. Cause we were talking about, you know, five or seven or 10 year old kid experiencing things and making things make meaning well, when you rehear, you rethink things as an adult, you're, you're going to look at it through a much more mature lens and you're going to kind of smack your head in the, you know, forehead in the, in your, you're going to smack your hand in your forehead and kind of say, I can't believe I was thinking that, or I can't believe that that's what's been driving the bus all this time. And I can break that. I can change it. And then I have a whole process for changing it, which is really three steps. There's or introspective um, and easy. I can tell you what they are if you're interested. Let's hear it because what I believe is, is that our beliefs and thoughts affect our actions and that our actions affect our results. And, and so what it all starts with what we believe. And, and if you are yeah. always told that those, you know, those, those bad rich people, well, you don't want to become one of those bad rich people. So subconsciously, you're not going to do the things that need to be done to accumulate wealth, maybe go to school or, or just have a valuable uh, profession. And then you don't become one of those quote, mean, horrible, greedy, rich people. And don't get me wrong. There is greed in the world, but to put the blanket statement on anybody who has some money is greedy and they got there by lying and cheating. That's just kind of the poor person's excuse for why they're still poor. Right. I think. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think, you know, it also, it simplifies a very complex uh, issue to just boil it down to, you know, a one-liner about anybody, rich or, rich or poor. And, you know, I think rich people are like the, um, I think they, they are the only, uh, it, it's the only socially acceptable form of bullying that we've got left. So it's got to go too because I know a lot of rich people who are some of the nicest people. First of all, you'd never know that they're wealthy and they're some of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet and the most generous people that you would ever want to meet. And I think that kind of gets lost too, that the wealthier you are, often the more humble people are uh, and the more you're able to give, right? That old phrase, um, to much who is given, much responsibility is owed, is true. A lot of people take that to uh, to heart. The the you know I can only speak to what has worked for me, and I try to eat my own cooking. But a very big part of what helped me 
in being able to even talk about the things we're talking about today personally, because it took me decades to break this open. It was a, um, an internal wrestling match between family loyalty and what's the difference between privacy and secrets and why is there even any value in me having these discussions? And the value is literally someone else will see themselves in my story and it will help to change them. And when I started discussing my family stories, I had already reached the professional success that I wanted. The money wasn't the issue. What I didn't understand, I had all the, all the secret shame that I had been keeping what it, what it took away was my sense of belonging and an inner peace that I never knew existed. And it literally broke me wide open to become more uh, giving in my life is what ended up happening by telling the stories. So the, the process I went through is I literally took myself down a trip down memory lane and I started writing and I'm, I was not a big writer at the time. And I started writing and making myself re-experience the feelings that I had had during lots of different um, financial moments growing up. That was the first stage. And from there, I started what I call the negotiation process. So to me, all negotiation starts within. Right. We always I always think about negotiation as you're talking with another person about something you want or you want to you know, barter with them. And that's true, too. But the negotiation I was talking about was admitting that there was a problem, thinking about it, clarifying my thoughts and feelings, which I did a lot of that through journaling and then managing myself in and out of the idea of opening up. Because on the one hand, I wanted the help of opening up and the healing aspects of that. And on the other, I was deathly afraid of the social pain of doing that. So that's what I mean by the negotiation process. The manage myself through all of that. The next logical step for me, haha, logical, was I actually signed up for a one-day public speaking course. And I vowed, I made a promise to myself that if I had a chance to tell my boat story, that I would. And I, I took the course and at the very end of the day, boom, there was the opportunity. The last uh, exercise that we had in the group was get up and take as many techniques from today that you learned in public speaking and tell us any story you want from your life. And I stood there and thought, this was what I've been waiting for. And I, literally thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown doing it or a stroke. Uh, but I did get up and do it. And it's like there was life before I told that story. And there was life after I told that story. And so what I'm proposing is it was a combination of doing a lot of writing and introspective work, and then putting myself in a position where I literally opened up. Now, you do not have to go to a public speaking course at a New York City skyscraper like I did and kind of make it more difficult on yourself. You can just call your best friend and say, can we really talk? Um, that's the next level. And it's 
if you're working on your money mindset and you've taken this trip down memory lane and your behavior is not any different, then the next level may be opening up to a public speaking course or your best friend or calling a therapist or a coach, right? It may involve another human being being able to receive your message, receive your story and hold it for you. That might be the next level. Everybody's different. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes taking, you know, an extreme step like a public speaking course and just getting it done, you know, that, that sounds like that's what you needed to do. And it really, really helped you. Mm -hmm. So like within our friends, our, our circles, our family, our kids and everything else, how do you suggest that we talk about money and how do we have proactive and healthy conversations about money? Cause like we said, money, we want to say that money's not important and it's almost like the, the religious thing to say money's not important. Well, no, it's not everything, but money is important and it is a part of life. And part of what makes it important is because you can build a wealth like Warren Buffett and he gave away $4.1 billion this week. That's more than I'll ever give away. I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. about you, but I don't have that to give away. And that money will do a lot of good. Presumably it'll feed people a, So money has very positive attributes if we use it for positivity, whatever that means for us individually. So so like, how do we talk about it? How do we, how do we, should your kids know how much money you make? Should your kids know account balances at a certain age? Do your friends know your net worth? Like, like what are some just tips about talking about money in a healthy way? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, (laughs) we, we, we would like to avoid having these conversations for sure. Um, I'll speak to how we do it with our our kids. So our two boys, um, as one would imagine, I started their college accounts right away when they were born. Um, I wasn't gonna miss being able to provide that for them. And when they became teenagers, I actually started showing them their accounts. So I'd always talked about um, that money's being put away for you, but I actually started showing them their accounts so that they could see that there was something tangible, how it was invested, all of that kind of stuff. I think there's a couple things. I think there's some questions that people dread, like how much money do you make mom or dad? Or how much money do we have in the bank? Or have you been saving for retirement? Like there are certain, listen, everybody has to decide what they are or are not comfortable with in terms of how transparent they want to be. And everybody's different. They have a right to choose all of that. But I say speak the truth. And what I mean by that is one of the most important things is to be truthful in general about your situation. For example, if you're a family that the priority is to save for retirement and we're really not going to be able to fund 100% of your education, be truthful about that with your children. That's the type of truth that I'm, I'm talking about. I think letting your kids in on the decision-making process. So if you're buying a car, if you're taking a family vacation, uh, you're going to the grocery store, right? Letting your kids in on the trade-offs that you're making in the decisions, the vacation, okay, we had choice A, we had choice B. We, here's why we chose one over the another. Just And none of that has to be a conversation around the hard and fast numbers of money. 
It can be the philosophical conversation of what went into the deciding factors. I don't think we let our kids in on that enough, right? We just end up at the vacation spot or the cars in the driveway. Well, what was the background before that got in here? So I think it's a lot, even those conversations. They, they say that what's really interesting, I don't know if you know this statistic, David, that 64% of people with a financial advisor don't feel like they have anyone to talk with about their money. Shocking, right? Well, because I think a lot of financial advisors will say, well, Michelle, I want to kind of look at your statement. And um, we uh, we beat the S&P benchmark by 4.8732%. And before you met with me, your other advisor only beat the benchmark by 3.257%. So I got you almost a percent more. And um, the beta of your portfolio, and you're like, holy crap, I don't know what any of that means. Like, I still am worried about, like, when am I going to have to liquidate my kid's college fund to pay the, just tell me that, tell me that I'm going to be okay. I don't care about, um, I don't know if you know who Bill Backrack is, the um, guy, he calls it financial porn that, you know, advisors (laughs) just use just to sound smart, but ultimately don't you just want to know that you're going to be okay. Your goals are going to be met or not. And what are some simple steps you can take? Yeah. It's like, I know the client is sitting there listening to that going, oh, he's talking about the money and I want to talk about me. Mm -hmm. That's what I think people want. Right. But they're, so it's partly approach, but it's also like people are more comfortable talking to their friends about you know, here's the, here are the pictures from my vacation and we just bought a new house. And like, people will say how much they pay for their house, but they won't say we haven't started the, the college account yet, or we ran up the credit card bill and I, I don't know where the money's coming from to pay that off. You know, we won't have those kind of conversations, right? So there, we do have money conversations in one sense, but not the real private ones. And it's the private ones that by opening those up, that's where change can happen. Because when, when you're not facing those issues, you know, the, the pages on the calendar, you know, fly off and go from, you know, one day to another. And before you know it, it's 10 years and 30 years later, and it's still an issue. And this can well, be resolved. And like a lot of other areas in life, I think social media has made these problems a little bit more difficult because, hey, this friend has two boats and this friend has this new car that they keep showing pictures of. And a lot of times they don't they never show pictures of the fifteen hundred dollar a month car payment that they have. And social media is just is very easy to look at other people's highlight reels and assume that that's just how their life is. And oftentimes the people Mm. are posting all these vacation, you know not to blanket statement, but oftentimes it, it may not be stuff that they actually can't afford comfortably and maybe shouldn't be doing, but it's very easy for us to get caught up. And, you know, that, that, that family has, has more quote stuff than, um, than I do or nicer stuff. And, and, and that affects our net worth and, and our self-worth. So, well, we could mm-hmm. talk about this for weeks and hours, and this is just so interesting to me. And I, th- these are some of the concepts that I love talking about with, with my clients as well. Before we talk about how to find you, I have one question. What is your definition of wealth? It, in two words, total freedom. That's really it. my definition. 
I love that you didn't give a dollar amount because it's not about a dollar amount. It's it's not about account sizes. It's about freedom. And for some yeah, people, no, that I may even mean cooking. downsizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's freedom for me. Right. So if somebody's listening and says, wow, you know, I've just, I've never talked about money like this. I've never thought about money like this. And I have some issues that, you know, uh, going back to kind of something resembling the piggy bank inc incident that you had, how would somebody find you? And, and if they wanted to talk with you, kind of how would that process work? Mm -hmm. Well, the, be the best places to find me would be Instagram, which is the Michelle A.B., and my website, which is michelleab.com, Michelle with two L's. And there's a, there's a guide on my homepage called the Success Formula Guide. And what it does is it helps people walk through prior life successes, financial or otherwise. In fact, I encourage people to look at non-financial successes. You're guided through a series of prompts and questions to where you're thinking deeply around the different tools and techniques that you've used, maybe how you stayed resilient to achieve a goal, uh, what type of adherence strategies, you know, accountability did you put into place to get from point A to point B? Were you leaning on a network of people to help you? You know, all of those types of things to where at the end of the guide, what you've got is this 30,000 foot view of how you do you, right? How you make a success of yourself in different goals that you've achieved. And the idea is to then look at that and think about that through a money lens. How can I apply some of these things that I just have naturally created for myself and how I do things? Because there are definitely patterns people have and everyone is so different in how they accomplish things that are highly transferable skills to transcend your money beliefs and to improve your behavior. I love it. Well, we will put your, uh, your Instagram handle and your website in the show notes. And I just love this episode and I'm proud of this episode because this can change lives. This isn't about getting 2% more, more return or, or buying bonds instead of stocks or stocks instead of bonds. This is about, and my core belief is that money is simply a tool to help my life and the lives around me be better. And it's not necessarily about more, it's just about enhancing life and not being a detriment because oftentimes money, even excess money is a detriment on lives. So I appreciate your time. Uh, anybody that uh, would love to go to michelleab.com, that's www.michelleab.com or um, visit her on Instagram and we wish you a blessed weekend. I hope that was an informative episode. I sure enjoyed making it with Michelle Arpin Bagina. If there are any financial issues that are keeping you up at night, email me at david at parallelfinancial.com. That's david at parallelfinancial.com. And let's do this. Let's do a 30-minute either phone call, Zoom conversation, or even meet here in person if you're comfortable. And let's talk about these things. And let's see if we have some next steps to solve solving the financial issues that are keeping you awake at night. 
The information contained herein, including but not limited to research, market valuations, calculations, estimates, and other material obtained from Parallel Financial and other sources are believed to be reliable. However, Parallel Financial does not warrant its accuracy or completedness. The materials are provided for informational purposes only. It should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. Past performance is not indicative of future results.